I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Although Black architects attain the same education, perform on the same project teams, and complete similar project types, historically their credentials are questioned and their work often goes unnoticed. We're here to change that. I'm Karen Burton. And I'm Sandra Little. And this is Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E. The podcast where the world can get to know the very significant contributions contemporary and trailblazing architects have made to the profession, the community, and major cities across the U.S. Welcome back to Hidden in Plain Sight. Today, we will be talking with Michael Ford. Mike Ford, the hip-hop architect. If you do not know about hip-hop architecture, um, you will learn about it today. Mike Ford has hip-hop architecture camps throughout the United States where he brings together hip-hop music and architecture to introduce uh, students young people, kids, to the architecture profession and intertwines that with hip-hop music so that they have a better understanding, so that he can engage with them uh, better about architecture. So Mike has dedicated his academic and professional careers to exploring the intersection of architecture and hip-hop culture. He is the founder of Mundo, Inc., which is a 501c3 where he runs the hip hop architecture camp. And uh, he has been featured on 
Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey. He's been on the Today Show. He's been in Rolling Stone Magazine, Architect Magazine, and also on ESPN. So we'll talk about this a little bit in the interview, but I got my first glimpse of hip-hop architecture with Mike when Sandra and Mike and I were all working together at Hamilton Anderson Architects here in Detroit. Yes, yes. I remember uh, when I met Mike and Hamilton Anderson, you know, he used to call me coach because I was like, you know, talking to him about like, I mean, your thesis is really dope. You did it on hip hop architecture. You know, you really should talk to people about it. He's like, I don't know. You know, will people steal my ideas? It's like, man, no, get out there and do it. You you speak it, you know, and you're the one talking about the topic and you're the subject matter expert. Then you own it. You know, he was like, okay, okay. All right. Thanks, coach. You know, so I appreciate that from him. But like you said, he's 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 been doing this this hip hop architecture camp, but he also is a principal of his own firm. He's a licensed architect. He's principal of brand new design studio, an mm-hmm. architectural firm that, you know, leads projects such as the Universal Hip Hop Architecture Museum in, in the Bronx, uh, which is under construction. It should be opening soon. And he just has so many more accolades. You know, he's just like he's run Young Architect of the Year for the American Institute of Architects, yes. Wisconsin chapter. He currently serves as the uh, president of Wisco Noma. And because of him moving from uh, Detroit to Noma, Mike is the founding member of both Wisco Noma and Noma Detroit. So he was here when we started Noma Detroit mm-hmm. uh, and then moved to Wisconsin and they founded the chapter there. So he's the founding member of two Noma chapters. Really does me proud as a uh, Noma uh, Nationals Midwest Vice President. So I'm able to engage with Mike uh, and, and Steele while he's at Wisco Noma. And on, on top of all of that, right, he is a husband and a father and still manages all of that, right? Uh, and catapulting the, his career and the career of young people that he intersects with. It's just amazing. Yeah. Mike is just so passionate about architecture, passionate about educating people about architecture and educating students on architecture. He is just one of the ultimate architecture ambassadors, great ambassador for our profession, uh, getting people to understand architecture and seeing it in so many different ways, uh, seeing it and understanding it in so many different ways, you know, not just statically through buildings, uh, he does furniture design and he integrates hip hop with that. He takes the music and turns it into art that can be um, seen in uh, digital art on the walls. Uh, and he's also a sculptor now. He's done some sculpture. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, Mike even has just taken art. Clothing as well. Clothing as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's he's taking architecture to a different level. Right. I don't know if we're going to be able to have enough room in our show notes to put all the stuff that we have. Mike. <laughs> I mean, well, like he's telling everybody to see the show notes. But on this one, it's going to be like, hey, it's going to be like multiple pages of the website. I mean, he has tons of things that he's done. Um, yeah. You know, he's been part of South by Southwest Conference. He's mm-hmm. uh, spoke at numbers of times at Texas uh, Society of Architects. He's done TEDx in Wisconsin and Madison. Been on PBS. He's spoken at colleges and universities across the country. Uh, mm-hmm. Harvard GSD. He's spoken at uh, his his alma mater, uh, University of Detroit Mercy. 
uh, Clemson University, University of Michigan. Yeah, I was just Clemson University. Yeah, I mean, you just everywhere. name it. So, yeah, y'all gonna have to catch the show notes. We can't even give you everything right, that, right. <laughs> that Mike has done and and do him justice in the intro. It's like, man, <laughs> we give you a list of buildings that you know the architects enjoy have enjoyed working on, or buildings projects that inspire them. But you know, if you have an opportunity not just to see Mike Ford's physical work, but to go hear him speak, you should do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Check out his speaking engagement. And then his impact with the children. I mean, he's had over 5,800 applicants and 2,800 participants. So he he cannot wow. even get <laughs> all the people, all the young kids into his camps that he needs to get. He has over 356 volunteers. Uh, he's been over 30 cities. He's had 25 actual hip hop artists and celebrity guests at the camps to talk with these children and inspire them. And there's been hip hop songs done at the end of these camps, right? That reflects the mm-hmm. cities that these kids have been talking about and designing in that week that they're in the camp. And when you say there are hip hop songs, these are the students yes. from the hip hop architecture camp. You know, they come in, they don't know, many of them did not know that they were going to produce a song when they finished the camp. But you can go on to YouTube and see videos and other locations and see videos that these students have produced once they are completing the hip hop architecture camp and the songs that they develop themselves. Yeah, like my, my son was a part of the, the hip hop architecture camp here uh, when it was in Detroit at the University of Detroit Mercy. And I'm like, you know, it's just normal kids. I mean, but I'm like, how do you know that they're hip hop artists, right? When you start out, they volunteer, right. they come into the camp, they volunteer and say, yeah, I want to, I want to be part of the, the rap verse at the end. I want to do this one. And they actually talk about things that they learned about in the camp, right? So they mm-hmm. are making they're they're making architecture, they're making poetry about their cities and rapping about it at the end. And it was just it was just amazing to be a part of it. It was just like it was right. totally totally amazing to see these kids step up and really just like I said, put into music what they learn. It's it's amazing business model that he's come up with for this. Right, right. And then also you hear a lot about Cast Technical High School. Here on our podcast, one of the larger and more prominent high schools here in the city of Detroit, uh, Mike Ford was is an alumni of Cass Technical High School, and there has been a Mike Ford Day right, at right. the school. <laughs> and out of that day, he didn't just want it to be a day where he celebrated. Uh, he gave away um, scholarships. Yes. He has given a scholarship to students from Cast Tech who want to pursue architecture. So that is fantastic. Mike is not um, just doing this for himself. He's doing it so that students have an opportunity to go to college and so that um, they can pursue architecture as a career. We, we talk about Cast Tech and you got to listen to some future episodes uh, or, yeah. you know, that you're going to hear about just the numerous people that are Cass Tech grads, you can't tell them in, that it's any school better in the whole country <laughs> than Cass Tech. But for him to come back and do a gesture like that is just amazing. And then not only did he 
worked with high school students. He worked with youth, but now he's teamed with other organizations and corporate sponsors. And he's gotten over eight paid internships and travel stipends for HBCU students. So he's university, high school, and the youth. I mean, right. like you said, how you know how old is this guy, right? He's not old. It's like, it's like, he's like, how do you know? Right? He's he's accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. I'm happy to say that I have been around Mike ever since he got out of college, and really have seen him just blossom. It's just a a great thing to see the impact of someone from Michigan ripple across the world and i can't even say across the country across the world because there have been hip-hop architecture camps that have been outside of the united states he has had some in canada he's had some in in africa and just to see someone that you worked alongside just continue to just catapult i am so proud of and so happy to bring my board to everybody today i am and he's not slowing down and he's not slowing down exactly (laughs) So welcome, Mike Ford. All right. Good afternoon and welcome to Hidden in Plain Sight. We have Michael Ford on with us, the hip hop architect. We are so glad and honored to have you on with us. Mike Ford is originally from Highland Park, Michigan. Highland Park is a city within the city of Detroit. So welcome back home. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be joining y'all. It's great to be uh, back here. Right. So what brings you back home? This week, uh, working on a project with some young folks in Highland Park uh, doing community engagement as uh, we redesigned my elementary school, which is uh, kind of full circle here. The elementary school I went to, so from kindergarten to second grade, you know, has been purchased uh, by a group. Uh, the school has been closed for a couple of decades now, but they are now converting that elementary school, which sit right in the heart of a neighborhood, uh, to a community center. So I'm one of the architects working on a project and I'm getting some ideas from the neighborhood. So I'm running the hip hop architecture camp to help flush out some ideas from young folks. That is so, that is so cool, man. It's like, yeah, you're right. It's a full circle, come back home and I mean, work on your elementary school. It's almost like the dream project, right? And, uh, and from, and what I, and from what I saw today, it looks like the school, you say it's been closed, but it looked like the school is actually in pretty good shape, uh, compared to some schools that's been shut, shut down here. So that's, that was good to see. Yeah. They, they, it was weatherized and it had small programs here and there, you know, that will occupy part of the school for a couple of years. You know, one of them being a Head Start program, which operated in about a quarter of the school. Um, but now the, the group, uh, Wayne Metro, so that's the organization purchased the school. But yeah, it was in good shape, but it's pretty funny to walk through. You go to the library, you see some of the same books <laughs> that were there when I was in the second grade. No oh. joke. You know, I'm posting, oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm posting pictures in group chats. I'm like, hey, can you remember this book? You know, day after day, it's like you know, nostalgia. Just going through, looking at the gym, going through the, the restrooms. It, it brings back a, a lot of memories. But it's all that feel-good nostalgia. That's a good one to have. You know, just just kind of feeds your soul. I can see the smile on your face. And I, I oh, saw, yeah. <laughs> that's 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 all like that's that's what's up. 
that'll help spark some creativity and connect them back to your community. So like Karen was saying, you, you're from Highland Park, which is in the middle of Detroit. And we give a warning before we start this podcast. Everything is Michigan, Detroit centric. We, you know, we the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and uh, I think we're showing it with the interviews we have here. But what we we start off and we ask everybody, you know, you, you know, are you from, you know, Detroit, Michigan, you know, Highland Park? And tell us your Detroit kind of design story, like, you know, how Detroit makes a difference in design. Right. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, you know, being born and raised in Highland Park, but then I also graduated from Detroit Public Schools. So I had this interesting foot in Highland Park, the place that, that birthed me, and then in Detroit, the place that raised me, you know, graduated from Cass Tech High School, the only high school out there uh, in, in the state of Michigan. <laughs> We had, that, we had that conversation last night. We just had that conversation <laughs> It's a normal, man. I said, you can't tell cast tech people nothing. <laughs> um, so I, I have my foot in, in both places. But one of the things that, to me, makes, uh, and I'm going to speak to Highland Park, that makes Highland Park unique. Karen, as you said, is this, this small city that's bound on all sides by the city of Detroit. Oftentimes, it's overshadowed or the innovation from Highland Park is overshadowed by, you know, Big Brother Detroit. And I think something that, that makes Highland Park unique, you know, is, is Henry Ford and uh, the invention of, you know, the assembly line. So that, that Model T and that assembly line started right in the heart of Highland Park on, on Woodward Avenue. And that innovation, that creativity, the people that were brought to the city of Detroit often say it was it really was inspired by what was happening in Highland Park. Uh, more than just Detroit. Say Highland Park was that that catalyst. And what's developed out of that, you know, the start of the assembly line and Henry Ford in that five dollar day, which was like, you know, this huge payday for people working at Ford. You know, some of the houses that you can see, you know, in and around the city of Highland Park. And then, you know, on the immediate perimeter of Highland Park and some of the historic neighborhoods like Boston Edison District, uh, it has a, a character to the homes that you don't see in any other part of the city where a lot of the executives live. But at the same time that I, I like to celebrate and talk about that great innovation of Henry Ford and the $5 day, he got that dark history to the $5 day was like, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to inspect how you're spending that $5. Your kids should be clean, your house. It, it was a dark history there too. but. I always like to tell people, you know, the car got its, its big start in Highland Park, not so much Detroit. That's very true. That's very true. You're talking about dream dream projects. Like, you know, if we get the, uh, if you ever get a lead on the uh, Model T uh, building and uh, want to renovate that one, you know, Quinn Evans would love to do that. So that that's the dream project there. So be an awesome project that that factory still stands right there yeah, on, on Woodward. I, I heard at one time they were going to turn it into a welcome center. I don't know what happened to that. That'd be nice. It's on the that National Historic Project. Yeah. It's on the National Historic Register. It would be uh, amazing. Like you said, that story a lot of people don't know about. It's one of those overlooked gems that we have. It's kind of like Motown Museum. When you grow up in Detroit, it's like, oh, yeah, that's just Motown. You grow up, you look, go, up, you go down Woodward Avenue, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just the Model T. You know, they started this in line. But it, it's a, I'll, I'll not say overlooked, I'll say under-celebrated. Yes, yes. I, I, I agree. The, and Detroit has a lot of that, like, like the, you know, the Motown effect across the country. You know, it's just, 
unbelievable. You know, the talent that, that comes out of uh, Detroit, design talent. I mean, I remember uh, when we had the NOMA conference here in 2012, you know, everybody didn't know the deep history of Saarinen and Cranbrook and uh, all of the work that uh, mid-century modern work that came out of this area. It's just it's just a very, very, very uh, innovative and strong design oriented culture here. That's why we are the only UNESCO city of design in the United States. I think we're still the only UNESCO city of design, but actually the first and maybe still the only. I think so. But tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, what college you went to and and what got you interested in uh, in architecture as a career? Yeah. So again, growing up in Highland Park, knowing the history of like, you know, the car industry and the roots of, of the city of Highland Park, the first thing I want to do was design cars. And I went to a summer program at Center for Creative Studies. And I remember going to the program. My dad found out about it, found out about it a little late. It was like the week of the program. We go to register. It was a cost. I don't know how much it was. It was a couple hundred bucks. My dad is like, I don't know about this. <laughs> and the guy said, well, if you got a portfolio, we can give you a discount. So my dad's like, yeah, you got drawings all over the house. So we went home. I'm tearing drawings out of notebooks. I don't have no portfolio. I'm putting stuff together. Uh, we went back and they gave me like a, a deep discount. Like, okay, you love to draw. You can use different mediums. Uh, my mediums was pencil, ink pen, and color pencils. It wasn't a... That's a medium. That's a medium. But, you know, the, the sketches was good. And uh, so they gave him a discount. He was able to enroll me. So I went to, it's like a two-week program to learn more about uh, designing cars. And during that program, I remember this uh, the situation where they had someone from one of the big three. He came in and he talked about you know, what it takes to design a car. And then the next year, a new car is going to be designed. And at this time, this is my first time knowing that, okay, every year a new car is coming out. And you are not necessarily the designer of that new car. And I don't know, that hit me hard. And I asked the teacher, I was like, oh, I, I never knew that you couldn't design it. You know, every car to come out. I said, what would it take for you to design every car? Uh, because if I design a car, I want everybody to be able to ride in it. But you need time to save up money. And this is me as a little kid. Like, you need time to save money. You need time to, you know, a new car will come out. By the and she's like, you know what? You should think about architecture. Everybody can go in your building. They don't have to buy it. Ah. And the building will probably last longer than you. So people can always experience it's not going to always be a new building every year on that same site. It's just one building and hopefully it lasts a lifetime. I was like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Everybody can. And that was my first introduction to architecture. I had to be in like the fifth grade, maybe uh, around fifth or sixth grade. I still remember that, that experience. And then from there, you know, I took interest in architecture, never did a program or anything uh, beyond CCS, but uh, when I applied to go to Cass Tech, um, architecture was one of the curricula that you could select. So uh, I got accepted to Cass, and I was in that architecture curriculum. After that, I think 11th grade, I met some folks at the Detroit Collaborative Design Center. Okay. Uh, my, so you had never met an architect before no. then? You, you just kind of like picked this as your pathway. And, and when you were at Cass Tech... 
no like architects came in and spoke at uh cast tech when you were there no no architects came in you know we had a great teacher her name was carol baker you know uh she was the one of the drafting teachers and I heard that name a couple times before yes yeah <laughs> yeah miss miss baker had an older cousin who looks exactly like me uh, or i look exactly like him he had went to cast he's four years older so my first couple of days at school people were like hey do you have a brother who went here oh that's my cousin he also was in architecture as well okay but he ended up going to uh became a marine okay but she was focused on making sure that we go to college to study architecture uh, because people would come to cast some of them would go to architecture but other people would go to engineering or other careers She's like, yeah, I'm gonna make sure y'all go to school for architecture. So she started taking us to critiques. And <laughs> she took us at UDM. And I learned about the design center and I met Dan Patera. Nice. So uh Dan Patera was the first person who said, Yeah, you should come to, to University of Detroit. You don't have to go off to U of M. You can stay right here. It's right next to Highland Park. It's right down six mile. You can go to school right here. And learn architecture and uh you know it's like I, I think he, he gave me the udm slogan i see great things from you i was like okay so he got, <laughs> nice. he got us hot he got us excited he actually got three of us who were studying architecture at cast we all went to to udm together myself eric christian and david collins wow i think it's important you know that you got a glimpse of critiques before you got to college. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times people don't experience that critique. I know I didn't until I got to college and actually had to do one. Uh, so it can be very jarring <laughs> for an architecture student to experience that the first time. And it's good that you got to see that uh, before you got to school. It, it was still jarring to be on the other <laughs> side, you know? Yeah, yes. It, it was still a little bit of a shock. So finished at UDM and um, I met Rainey at a career day. Another like another UDM grad, Cash Tech grad. So y'all had it vibing. <laughs> yeah, so I, I met Rainey, you know, and and that was my my first job coming out of uh, coming out of UD going to Hamilton. So that's where we met. Yep. So, so we that, met at HAA. <laughs> that's that's been a, a theme though. A lot of um. I can't wait to uh, uh, interview uh, Rainy Formula. We we we've uh, we've been on several panels together, but you know his him at that time in HAA. It was a lot of us who came through the firm, that minority firm at that time. Um, that went on to do some things that people are today like, oh my goodness, so some that that whole group did some remarkable things coming through that firm. And like I said, that's where Karen and I met. That's where you and I met, and it's like. A lot of us and the whole birth of Noma Detroit in 2007, um, all of that happened there. You know, um, Noma had kind of stopped and stalled here in Michigan for a long time. And then it's been going ever since then. Yeah, Randy opened, opened some doors for a lot of folks. Yes. Yes. So I want to go back just for a second, Mike, when you said you were in the fifth grade and you were analyzing this career as an automotive designer car designer. And you wanted to figure out, you know, where you fit into that space. So that said a lot about you. That 
said a lot about you as a child, as you were trying to determine where you're going to fit into a profession. And you still, I believe that still continued as you navigated through architecture, because you, as a hip hop architect, the hip hop architect, you looked at architecture from a different lens or from somewhat different lens than other people. You know, so tell us a bit about how you um, start thinking about architecture and hip hop and melding those two things together. Yeah, so it's a funny story, like how it started as a joke, to be honest. So me and my best friend, he was my best man at my wedding and he DJed his way all through high school and college, Eric Christian. When we were uh, at UDM, we would do our critiques animations were starting to be a big thing. So we would do these animations in 3ds Max and we started to compose it with music. And we would always put rap music behind our animations. Like sometimes you have like just some subtle, nice background music, you know, nothing that took the attention away from the architecture. We were like, no, let's put some music. And then the joke was we would see if we could put some music that got cuss words, or that had like some double entendre that like nobody else got, but we got it. <laughs> and, you know, we just let it play. We'd get our friends to come over and watch our critiques just to watch the video to see like what music we would put in there. And we would all like smirk and be like, yeah, like, hey, that was dope. That was dope. And we did that a number of times in undergrad. And then once we got to writing our thesis, so we had to spend the summer before writing a thesis abstract. And it's like, what are you going to spend a whole year? focusing on. You got, this is the one change you got to make your own project. I started off with something boring. I got bored with it over the summer. It was like livable skyscrapers, a skyscraper that you will never leave out of in your entire life. So that's what I started off with. I'm like, I'm bored talking about this already. So Eric was like, man, do it on music. Like do it on putting rap in the videos. I was like, you know what? I should do it. And eventually uh, it changed into our we're gonna see how we can mix hip-hop and architecture now i still hadn't told my professor this my thesis advisor and on the first day of school all of the the graduate students would say what their thesis topic is (laughs) so i spent the whole summer preparing this skyscraper stuff and that day eric is like mike do it do it so i stood up and i was like yeah my thesis is going to be about i wasn't even hip-hop architecture it was like it was like mixing rap music in architecture, my professor is looking at me like, what are you talking about? And that's, that's how it started. It was, <laughs> what can I spend a year on that I want, I won't get bored on? It's something that's really interesting to me. And I'm not completing a thesis for the sake of like finishing school. So Eric helped push me and motivate me to that. And um, yeah, I, I haven't put it down since then. When I finished the thesis, then I started working at uh, Hamilton Anderson, uh, Rainey would have, you know, lunch and learns or, you know, the, the monthly meetings, uh, all staff meetings. The BOMs. Yes, the BOMs. <laughs> was it the beginning of the month? Yeah, the beginning, beginning of-, of the month. We used to call it the bomb meetings. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes, the <laughs> BOM. And I, these meetings were so fun. Like, you know, people would Photoshop people's faces on funny movie posters. And I'm like, Rainy, let me talk about hip hop architecture. I will always ask Rainy, let me talk about something. And Rainy's like, you know what? I'm a, you need to go to a NOMA conference. And he, you know, signed me up 
for the first my first NOMA conference. And he's like, yeah, if you can, if you put in for a seminar, you know, we'll, we'll pay for you to go to the conference. And uh, the seminar was hip hop architecture. So I went and presented my thesis at the conference in, um, I believe it was like 2007 or 2008 in, in DC. So that was Rainey telling me, stop talking about that at the office, go talk about it with somebody else. But then Rainey's in the front row, he's like, I'm like, hey, I'm Mike Ford from Detroit. And Rainey, who I had never seen him like cheering or like loud, Rainey is like egging me on. And, you know, it was pretty dope. So that's how it started. And it's evolved and took twists and turns. Austin still. That, that's right. That's right. When I when I met you and you were like, you know, trying to figure it out. Should I talk about it in public? Should I not talk about it in public? What does this mean? You know, when they steal my ideas or thesis, I was like, hey, this is you, man. It's like once you put it out there. They gonna know that it's a passion of yours, and it went way beyond your thesis, you know. And I think I was in the audience for the first time you presented it at Hamilton Anderson, and the room was packed. So, so you eventually did get a chance to do it at Hamilton Anderson. So, yeah, uh, yeah. standing room only. So, yeah, <laughs> like I said, now it's a whole movement. I mean, I mean, just hearing you hearing you talk, there's things like. Like Damon and I, when I, we started our firm, Citrix Design Studio, you know, we used to always say, well, we're going to talk about our firm like Jay-Z talked about his music when he started, right? We're going to go out there and be like, you haven't heard? You know, Citrix Design Studio <laughs> yes, is the best yeah. firm you in the world. You ever heard? You know, and that's what he used to do with his label, right? He, used to, he got, he getting mixtapes and CDs out the back of his truck telling everybody, oh, you ain't heard? You know, you check out, check out this demo, let's listen to this. And we do those things all the time. You know, we use the inspiration from hip hop in everyday life. And to just have that come into architecture, is just forward thinking of you to put those two together. You know, similar to back when um, I'm thinking about cars and you know, I want all my cousins to ride in my car. I want all my you know family, I want everybody to ride this car. You telling me a new one gonna come out? It was similar to architecture. It was, you know, you, you in architecture studio, it's only those people in studio. You got all these other friends who never stepped foot in the architecture building. Like, hey, how can we get them to come to our building? Let's play some music. They, they'll show up. And then now, even how do we differentiate ourselves professionally, especially as young professionals? Uh, we find ways to do it. And, and hip hop is like, hey, sounds like you said. I, I'll talk about myself like I'm the the baddest rapper in the world. Like it's this bravado. It's this, you know, this way of promoting yourself. Uh, not just talking, but actually doing as well. Like, hey, I don't need the record deal. I'll sell it from my trunk. I'll go out and find my own clients. So how can you bring those attributes into architecture? But then also one of the other things that, that has evolved since my thesis was I just figured out the cultural genius that is in hip hop. The complex mathematics that young kids are doing, like when you freestyle, like all the math you're doing in your head to have words and sentences aligned with beats, being able to tell a story that people don't know whether it's fact or fiction, like that's an amazing piece of literature. What other writer do you know that straddles the line of fact or fiction? Like you pretty much can put them in a category, but when you listen to rap sometimes, I don't know where it goes in this. All right, I can't go to your ballet school. I'm gonna make up my own dance. I'm gonna make you wanna leave ballet and come do mine. Right. Right. All right. Uh, so it's like, how can we create our own approach to architecture that is just as creative as all those elements within hip hop? And I don't know if I 
figured it out, but that's that's my no, life. no. I think it. I think it's a, it's still in process, right? It's still evolving, just like hip hop is still evolving, right? It's like one of the things. Like I, I think I we we had a conversation about this. Like my thesis was on Afrocentric architecture, right? That was the thing where you know uh, David Hughes, who I actually got just a meeting in Nova Conference, had done his book, and that kind of sparked me to do something like to do something different that I'd never seen before. And we had a conversation before about trying to figure out how does the African-American or the black fit into architecture too? This helps to fix that narrative. Right. And that, and to have that aesthetic be to, you know, be able to be expressed and talked about. And I think using hip hop is kind of like a mantra, like you said, to bring it along, but it's something that we all have been looking for at different parts of our career, you know, uh, and including some of the historical architects that we've been researching, we're trying to find our place in architecture. And I, and I think this does it in such a unique way using hip hop architecture that you bring in the, you bring in the pipeline as well. You bring in the young students into it. And you're and like I said, even you thinking about, well, wait a minute, everybody's not in the school of architecture. A lot of people don't think about who's not at the table, you know? So you brought that perspective to your work and that's helping to broaden so i think it's still evolving i think it's still more to do with that yeah hey i just wanted more people to see that work man we spent all night in that studio like man i want more people to see this oh let's let's hype this thing up (laughs) for nothing right right (laughs) and that's the other thing people don't understand a lot of people don't understand what architects do yes you know so you know that's this is helping expose that right that you know you know, now you touching all of these young children that are learning about not only architecture, but they learn about what an urban designer does, what a landscape architect does, and learn that they can actually help like you're doing, coming back to your community and help and fix it, uh, being a professional, you know, doing that. And I think that whole circle and that whole understanding of that has not been, you know, a big exposure to our, to the African-American community. And it's going to I think it has a lot of, a lot more time to run with that. Yeah, it's been fun and it's it's always something new, you know, even with the, the young folks who come to the hip hop architecture camp. Um, we now do this fun game at the beginning where we challenge the young people who say, I don't know anything about architecture. I don't know anything about interior design. I guess you do. All the songs that you're talking, all the songs that you listen to are like critiques of the spaces and places where the artists live. And then a lot of the album covers, the music videos, right? You're looking at architecture and interior design all day. So, you know, we have these fun games where we blot out the artists and all you can see is the architecture in the background. And we got, we have the kids guess, you know, what album cover this is, uh, what music video is this, but all you can see is the architecture in the background. And sometimes it's very nondescript architecture. It's like the warehouse from This Is America with Childish Gambino. It's like, you were able to point out those little details within this warehouse, and you know that this is Childish Gambino. And album covers uh, with buildings in the background, yep. and the Martin Lawrence, you know, right there on Jefferson, the, the, the building for the Martin Lawrence show is like, you know, you've been looking at architecture all this time, and uh, now it's time to stop looking at it and start creating it. Or it's also time to stop rapping about bad architecture, bad urban planning, and start solving the problems that you hear sometimes in the lyrics. Like, let's stop dancing to all these horrible stories and start designing into it. That's a that's an eye opening perspective. That's that's really cool though. To, uh, make make like I say aware of your surroundings, just waking waking them up basically to things that they already know, 
and seeing a new possibility. And that's 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 like the ultimate thing to to get a kid to realize. Like, look, you you have the possibility to change the world. Yeah. And you've already been looking. at. It. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's dope. That's dope. So, Mike, how many cities has the hip hop architecture camp been in? You know, at the end of this year, it'll be 35 cities oh. uh, that we've conducted camps in. And we got three countries growing up in. Oh, my goodness. Being in Michigan, you kind of like don't count Canada sometimes as another country because <laughs> it's right there. Right. But, you know, we, we've done a camp in Toronto and Vancouver. And then we've Great. also done one in uh, just outside of Nairobi, uh, Kenya. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So how many students have gone through the hip hop architecture camps? Yeah, so we've had just under 2,500 kids. Wow. And, you know, our goal is, you know, we have a kind of limited budget with the hip hop architecture camp. Like sometimes when I go give a lecture to people and they see the music video or they see like an artist who will come by, they think that we've paid this artist like some $20,000 appearance fee. And no, we don't have <laughs> a crazy budget which sometimes hurts us because, uh, for example, we get did a camp in Memphis, Tennessee, two weeks ago, and we had about 115 kids sign up for 40 available slots. Wow. Wow. But because of the curriculum that we have and some of the activities that we know we have to get to, we can't take you know that many students. So we could have had more students, uh, even though we, we I think we've, we've done a good job so far, but now, that's one of our, our biggest challenges now is trying to, you know, get funding so we can take on more kids and then also trying to, you know, keep up with kids over multiple years. Yeah. You know, how can we uh, track these young folks? The things that we've done since the pandemic. Uh, so we started a scholarship program. The first one was I gave it away at CAS, which was crazy. They made a Mike Ford day at CAS. That's what's up. <laughs> and it was all about. You know, just the opportunities I was bringing back for the school and the students at the school. So bringing companies back and, hey, you should hire some CAS students or you should get internships here. Uh, one of the big ones was bringing Gucci back uh, or bringing Gucci to CAS Tech, saying you need to work with their fashion program if you want to make a store in Detroit. And then Gucci had their world leadership meeting. I was at CAS Tech where they had all their re- leaders from around the globe come. And then that's when it's like, okay, we got to get Mike Ford a day. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> but I didn't want a day to be about me. So I brought some artists in and, you know, we gave a scholarship away on that day uh, nice. to an architecture student. That's nice. Uh, wow. So now, now I got Herman Miller. They sponsor, you know, we do a $10,000 scholarship each year to a student studying architecture. But that's my ultimate goal is to have each city uh, set up to, you know, have a scholarship for a person who participated in multiple hip hop architecture camps. Now they're about to graduate from high school and you can't tie, you can't pull hip hop and architecture apart for this young person. Like it's so ingrained that I know they're going to take it to school and take it light years further than what I've done. That's an amazing impact. I mean, getting corporations to, you know, assist in that and see the value in you know, and you know, they're, you know, minority students at, at, at uh, Cas Tech and, and give them an opportunity, right? I mean, like you said, if you go back to that first class at CCS, if you wouldn't have gotten a break in that cost, you may have not have been in that class, right? 
So and my daddy was not paying that two hundred dollars. Right, right. So it's like this is this is. I mean, like I said, this is groundbreaking to having more people removing, you know, that barrier of entry for young people to, you know, architecture school ain't cheap though. You know, the <laughs> the software, the laptops. Before back in the day, for me, it was with Jipboard and and phone core. All of that stuff was expensive, right? So this is just amazing just to uh, open up the doors and that you got the attention. And I think music has something to do with that, too. Like, you know, tying the culture together, tying the the industries that follow hip hop, tying them to architecture now is just, you know, just amazing and groundbreaking and, and something we need in this profession to help move that needle. And I know we've had the same discussions within NOMA, the National Organization of Minority Architects, that you know, we just starting to see maybe a student who was in Project Pipeline come on the other side and now they're a college student coming to help volunteer Project Pipeline or just out of college coming to help volunteer. So that 10 year cycle, 10 years from now for you is going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, I, you're going to see that ripple. I'm interested in seeing what things will look like 10 years from now, because um, I will say that it's been a lot of students who have experienced a hip hop architecture camp and I have no idea, you know, what they're going to bring to architecture because if they continue along this path of using hip hop as um, this catalyst for their design projects or, you know, using hip hop lyrics as prompts or kind of these, uh, these stories, these critiques of space. And now they want to go back to their neighborhood and, you know, help developers or, develop projects themselves that are all inspired by lyrics. I think that's one thing. But the other thing that I really preach during the camp is that our culture is very deep. And you can go down any of these avenues, whether it be dance, uh, and it doesn't have to be break dancing. Uh, it could be music, doesn't have to be rap. You got blues, right? I mean, it's called the blues, right? They were literally talking about the blues. Like, could that be another prompt for uh, design responses? So I would hope that 10 years from now, you see some people that are like deeply interested in hip hop architecture, but also wouldn't be surprised if it's people who went down other avenues or, or other things, whether it's food and maybe it's, it's language or textiles or other things that are uh, related to black culture and use that as a, one of their tools in their toolbox for architecture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of people are not going to go into architecture, we know, but you are showing them them that they can shape their communities and they have a say in the way that they, you, you know, their communities and the way that they um, live. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised too if we got a rapper that comes out of the hip hop architecture. <laughs> hopefully I can get all of us a suite one day and we could go to, you know, some concert and this kid is on stage is like, yeah, you know, I started off wanting to be an architect. Shout out to the hip hop architecture camp. Right. But then I learned more about hip hop and uh, never turned. <laughs> never and turned. then maybe they'll have a, a furniture line or a design line with some company with Herman Miller or somebody. Yeah, <laughs> or they hire one of the they one of their peers from the hip hop right. camp class. It's like, hey, I, I remember you. Like, let's let's collaborate. I, yeah. I know some of those videos, those kids are pretty dope with the lyrics. They are great. <laughs> yes. Like, what did you have from your camps? I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, it's always fun when I do a lecture sometimes. Uh, well, some of the lectures I do, I'll pull out a short verse from a student and I'll kind of explain 
what the student might have been thinking about, because you get to have all these conversations with the kids when they're writing. And sometimes you miss like the double entendres that's in there. Like always was one, this young lady from Detroit, you know, she was talking about a bakery that she wanted to design as a part of her project that we were doing. And, um, you know, in her rap, she said, in the future, I'm going to be rich on the bread. Uh. And like, when you watch the video, you're just like, oh, it's a little girl saying she's going to be rich off money. But no, if you were there and you seen the project she designed and she said, I'm going to be rich off the bread. Like, wow. Wow. It's, it's yeah. When you were saying that earlier about your your renderings and, and putting the music in there, it made me think about when LL did that FUBU commercial, right? And he was <laughs> he did he did that slide in there uh, for Fubu when he was even doing the uh, he was doing the commercial for somebody else for Gap yeah for, for Gap. Gap that's yeah. it yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep. so yeah it's just like like you said those backstories that like you said unless I always say it's about Detroit unless you're in the know of what's happening you you'd have missed it right yeah that's that's mm-hmm. that's what's up though I mean that's that's cool that the like you said the kids are thinking on a whole new level level and I and I think. You know, like you said, they they all not going to be architects, but if we can have developers, you know, urban contractors, contractors come come out of that, it's just changing the numbers all across the board within the AEC industry and and beyond. People to finance the projects. That's what we need. (laughs) I I listen. I listen to to this group of guys uh, from a group called Earn Your Leisure. I don't know if you heard of it. Yes. And they and they remind me of like they're putting the hip hop cool vibe and, you know, everyday vibe to talking about financial stock, the you know, real estate, all of that. And the following that they're getting is just growing, you know, and it makes it you don't feel intimidated in talking about finance. You know, you don't feel intimidated in talking about stocks and doing your research and you're hitting that communications level that the black community feels that everybody else really doesn't get. And bringing that to architecture, I think that that'll help widen the exposure to the, the numbers, the low numbers that we have in the profession. Yeah. And what those young people, uh, what they become, again, whether they become architects or not, they become informed consumers of architecture. Right. You know, when you're in trouble, you need to call a lawyer. You know, when you're hurt, you need to call a doctor. I want them to know that when it's time to design something, it's time to call an architect. Yeah, you're right. And you're right. Uh, no matter what profession they're in. I want them to know the power of architecture and hopefully they experience that during the camp. Now, I won't say that to funders. I'm trying to make informed consumers like, yes, I want all 2,500 of these young people to become architects. We know the reality. So I want them to, to know about our profession and know, you know what we bring to the table and you know not have any doubt on calling on us. So, so before we switch, I just want to ask you, like, from these kids coming out of here or any future generation of uh, young architects coming up or the future designers, do you have any words of wisdom you would give them towards the future based on where you are now in your career and what you've done with the camps? Yeah, my, my word of wisdom would be, you know, to not check your culture at the door. Bring in your experiences, bring in your memories, bring in your your faith. All of those things can be drivers for your design not just your aesthetic, but your your approach and the things that you want to solve or the problems that you want to solve within architecture. That's my biggest message. Don't don't check your culture at the door. Some of the greatest architecture that's been made has been based on memories and experiences of those architects. I talk about Frank Gehry and like this story he tells about Gefilte Fish and his grandmother like 
scaling the fish when she was making that dish. And he used this memory he had as a young kid in the shimmering light to design the Walt Disney, uh, what's that, the Walt Disney Theater in L.A.? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, concert Hall. Yeah. 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 And he, you know, he tells this like story about like this very like specific dish, just specific to his culture and how his grandmother prepared it and how he used it as a, a inspiration for one of his most recognizable designs. The, yeah. The concert hall. Yeah. And he used that scale and the fish sculpture on other things too. So you're right. You're right. Bring, yeah, so bring what, your what's our stories. What, what's our stories? What's our history? What 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 did you experience in church growing up? What was your, right. what was grandma cooking? What you know? How can we bring it and not try to learn the history of somebody else and try to use their, their history and their culture to encourage our design, right? Because we're all automatically at a disadvantage uh, when we have to learn someone else's culture and incorporate that into our design. So yeah. bring it being that that they love they love black folks they love everything that we do they copy you are correct. <laughs> Let's bring it into architecture. I was going to say, don't go, don't start going church, man. My, my, my son, uh, that, that has been the thing that's got him interested in, in helping us on the wire design party. Uh, you know, anything that he found out, like the number of large number of churches that, you know, black architects have done for the black community. And he just took off with it, man. He's like looking up stuff, finding it for me. I found this on newspapers.com. You know, he was just like, you know, check this out. He, and he, he did a presentation, man, on um, Nathan Johnson at his school. And mm-hmm. then one of the students came up afterwards. It's like, I had no idea that my church, Lomax AME, was designed by a black architect. Thank you for telling me that. I never knew that. It's just like you said, just bring your authentic self every day. Yeah. And, and and it just uplifts all of us, you know. Facts. That, that's, that's my word of advice. All right. All right. Well said. Hey there, architecture enthusiast, Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Today's Detroit City of Design Spotlight. We're going to talk to you about two cities that Mike Ford is a Highland Park born and raised resident, right? And mm-hmm. it's two cities that are encapsulated inside the city of Detroit. 
So one of those cities is Highland Park, but the other one is, I'm, I'm going to let Karen talk about Highland Park and I'm going to talk about Hamtramck. They're both in Wayne County, right? They're totally encompassed within the city of Detroit, almost like an island, right? Cities within cities. Cities within cities. within the city. Yep, cities within the city. So Hamtramck is approximately two square miles. It lies approximately five miles from the city of Detroit uh, with I-75, which is one of our major um, highways running along it. I-75 is to the western border and I-94 is to the south. Uh, so if you start to look at a map of Michigan, you find those two freeways and follow along, you will see Hamtramck right on the border of that. It was named after a one of the soldiers who fought in the uh, American Revolutionary War. That's where Hamtramck came from. He's the commander of Fort Shelby, which is in Detroit. Uh, a lot of rich history with Fort Shelby, too. That's like a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother uh, uh, episode. But um, Hamtramck was also known for automotive design here in Detroit. Albert Kahn designed the Dodge Main, which was closed in 1980 and demolished there. And uh, right at the border of Hamtramck and Detroit, it's a big factory that, that was really a part of uh, Detroit's uh, GM legacy. Pretty much it's called the Pole Town Plant that's right there on the border of the two cities. Hamtramck is known for a dessert that's called the Poonski, right? It's uh, given out in, in Fat Tuesday of every uh year right before Mardi Gras you know they're deep fried jelly and custard filled donuts big tradition here in Detroit to give out poonskis uh or in Michigan period uh to mm -hmm. give out poonskis on uh Fat Tuesday stand in line and get them I mean yes a long line right we, we were lucky enough to have one uh, contractor that brought poonskis into the office for us but there's also another um historical piece that's in Hamtramck the Detroit Negro League Baseball Stadium which is one of only five uh, Negro League baseball stadiums that are still in, in existence, is in Hamtramck. I was very fortunate um, to touch this project a little bit with a project called the Hamtramck Recreation District Plan. It looked at the Hamtramck Stadium, the baseball stadium. It looked at the uh, soccer stadium that is also over there, and well as the park that's there. It's just amazing that in the 1930s, the Detroit Stars played at this stadium. Um, also, the Detroit Wolves that uh, didn't have as much popularity as the Stars, but was one of two major league baseball teams, uh, Negro League baseball teams that played in the Negro Leagues that were um, played throughout the country. Um, this 1930s stadium is being renovated currently by the Friends of the Historic Hamtramck Stadium and will now be part of this larger district park that I just mentioned. So just exciting history. This, this stadium is also part of the uh, African-American Heritage Fund that's coming out of the National Park Service. So the funds and grants that are coming through Detroit with the 20th Century Civil Rights Sites has brought so much to highlight uh, Negro history uh, within uh, the context of the Detroit footprint. And with this being inside the Detroit footprint, this is also getting highlighted. But there's a whole nother city that, you know, Mike Ford grew up in, in Highland Park. Yeah. So Highland Park, Michigan, was settled in 1825. And it started out as a farming community, small farming community. But in 1907, Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company, purchased 160 acres of land uh, just north of Manchester Street, right off of Woodward Avenue, which is the main 
uh, highway, the main street that runs from Detroit, the Detroit River, all the way up through Pontiac. Henry Ford purchased that land and built an automobile plant there. And part of that plant still remains there. It was the second Model T plant that uh, Henry Ford built. And I believe that that Ford plant that remains um, the city of Highland Park or a nonprofit organization is looking to make that as a welcome center into the city. But Highland Park became a community for people who worked at this Ford plant. And the, the population of the city increased dramatically when Henry Ford opened that assembly line in 1913. Currently, there are about almost 9,000 people in the city. The city is about three square miles, almost three square miles. And one of the freeways that runs through Highland Park, runs through Highland Park and Detroit, uh, is the Davison Freeway. The Davison opened in 1944 and it was the United States' first modern depressed urban freeway, meaning that it ran underneath the city uh, and ran through the city of Highland Park and across to Detroit. It has been completely reconstructed and widened, as many of our highways are uh, continuously in Michigan, but it was the country's first modern urban freeway to be expected because all of the automobiles that were built here. Uh, again, also, you know, the largest highway, the largest street in the area, Woodward Avenue, runs through uh, Highland Park as well. Uh, Highland Park is having a resurgence of redevelopment of the resident single-family residential stock in the city. Uh, a lot of people are moving into the area and renovating the the beautiful single-family homes that are there, uh, Highland Park and Hamtramck. Yes. Cities within cities. So hopefully every time we give you one of these Detroit uh, City of Design spotlights, you learn something new about our city. Uh, we'll put something in the show notes. We hope you're Googling and finding out more about our great state. Uh, and yes, we are unapologetically uh, Michigan-focused on this podcast. But we think, Definitely. you know, it's a lot... A lot of design and a lot of history to offer from our state. So, yeah, we, we're putting it out there. Check out our spotlight on each of our, our podcast episodes. And back to Mike Ford, Highland Park native. So, Mike, um, like many great architects, your career expands you know, outside of designing buildings. So you are, you do furniture design, you have art installations, not to mention mentoring all of these students with the hip hop architecture camp. So tell us a bit about, you know, your partnership with Herman Miller and Gucci and uh, the art installations that you do. And what's on the horizon for you? What's next for Mike Ford? I'll start off with what's next. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I have totally committed myself to just aligning myself with good folks and let the universe, you know, bring on the next good opportunity. I definitely target things, you know, got a, got a wife and kids, so I got to make sure I know where some money is coming from. 
Uh, but as far as what's next, I stay open-minded because all the stuff I'm about to talk about, I would have never put that on a what's next list. So the collaboration with, with Herman Miller kind of happened organically after uh, being commissioned by the city of Madison, uh, Wisconsin, to do a mural. You know, just like most cities, people were boarding up their like central business districts or kind of main thoroughfares uh, with all the uprisings that were happening. And um, a friend at the art commission like, called me, he's like, Mike, we had an artist who couldn't show up, couldn't do their piece. You know, can you do it? I said, sure, I can do it. He said, well, you have to do it tonight. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even have an idea. Wow. But um, I, it was a good friend. I wanted, you know, she's helped me out a lot. So I want to get her out of the bind. It was an installation on the, the Madison Museum of Contemporary Arts, like a prominent corner in Madison. So it's like, all right, I'll, I'll do it. I got uh, myself and a you know, fellow designer in Madison, uh, Rafika Saad called him up like hey i want to paint you know one tick mark for every second that officer chauvin had his knee on george floyd's neck and rafik's like what it's like yeah come on let's do it we'll we'll film it and be like a performative piece all right that's the amount of time i had i didn't have a lot of time to think of something but it was about viewing time in a new medium right now to like understand how much time uh chauvin had his, his knee on, on george floyd's neck so we painted it we called it 526 missed opportunities. It was, you know, 526 seconds. Oh. Um, but then during the, the trial, we learned that it was even more time, right? That was the wrong time that was put out there. It was even more time that he spent. Um, somebody didn't agree with the statement. She came and she like crossed out, you know, some of the, the tick marks. And then the city went and painted it, they fixed it. So then she went across like all of them out and she wrote some stuff like black people don't need to worry about police. They should worry about China still in their organs. Like she went from like one racism issue to like another racism issue of her like talking about China. It's like, what? And um, some kids caught her on camera. They filmed the whole thing and it ended up being on the local news and the news wanted to interview um, about what the piece meant. And a Herman Miller rep her son saw it and she's like, mom, come look at this cool artist guy. And she said she came in and seen it. And she sent me an email the next day, like, hey, how can Herman Miller help? You know, wow. And that's what the email was. And uh, I had a lecture before this, where the universe kind of aligned. I always opened my lecture by showing the Eames lounge chair before hip hop and then after hip hop. And I know that, you know, Herman Miller now owns that collection. So I was like, hey, let me get an Eames chair. Uh, the, the Eames Lounge Chair Ottoman, that could be a start. And let's make a mural on a chair. She's like, okay. And the, like the next couple of days, I got a chair shows up at the house. You know, it's a chair I, I could never buy on my own. It was like $7,000 chair. And yeah, that's how the how it started. And then it was, how can Herman Miller get involved with this discussion? And it was put it on their most recognizable piece. And then... Um, so what I did was I wrote the names of victims of racial violence throughout the history of America. And um, it was forwarding the message of Charles and Ray Eames. Uh, they said they were creating a refuge from the strains of modern day living. So I'm like, what's black folks refuge during all this time? Like, we can't jog down the street. We can't do regular everyday things uh, without being murdered. So uh, that was how the collaboration started. I wrote the names on the chair and um, 
we started something called, you know, a chair that makes you take a stand. And, um, you know, we had discussions where rappers, different community activists sat in a chair and we had discussions about, you know, what was happening around the country right now. Well, that's that's something. Refuge and refuge. So you went back and found that quote and found that idea from Charles and Ray Eames and brought it into the modern day. So that's that's fantastic. So is are those videos uh, available online? Yep. So the videos were all done through um, you know Herman Miller's Instagram account. Okay. And then in doing those talks, uh, we raised money for uh, organizations who you know create refuge for for Black and Brown children. Okay. And then some of the other projects like the the art installations again something I would have never done. The art installations was born from the hip hop architecture camp. So the, with the hip hop architecture camp, one of the assignments we do is we have young people analyze lyrics, the structure and the patterns and texture within rap or the cadence of how people talk. And we make these textiles that is really a rap song, but it's the pattern from the rap. And um, this latest project for National Guardian Life Insurance, they wanted me to take their mission statement and was it possible to um, somehow analyze their mission statement and turn it into a textile or a graphic? So it started off as being like a vinyl wrap on a wall. It's like a two-story wall that they had when you first come in their new office that they just built. Well, it went from being a vinyl wrap to eventually being made out of granite. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so this is in their actual corporate office. It was in their, their okay. headquarters uh, in Madison. It's a nice location right off the lake. They wanted to like make a statement when you come into their office. Like, what was their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Uh, at first, they just wanted to literally put their words, like write their statement. And you know, I challenged them on that. And you know, eventually, we created this textile uh, based on like, every letter, every word in their, their statement. We also had discussions about what it means to work with a Black architect and how can you get something unique uh, from working with a Black designer. So, mm-hmm. so that installation, again, went from you know, each meeting, people got more and more excited in it. Again, they eventually took their entire art budget uh, for the entire building and, and put it towards that wall. Wow. Yeah, so we had to make it out of granite. Like We abstracted every single letter in the alphabet. We made our own font. It was inspired by hieroglyphics, inspired mm-hmm. by a lot of different eras of of black artistry yeah that that project you know i didn't expect it to happen i definitely didn't expect the budget that they put towards it i thought it was going to be just a, a wallpaper on a, a pattern mm-hmm. so yeah so those projects i would have never assumed would happen and i will tell everyone too as a piece of advice art installations have very different fees than architecture projects right um Shout out to National Guardian Life Insurance. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a very different fee compared to yeah what you might have gotten for like the actual renovation that happened in the office. There's definitely some value behind art, which I know sometimes our community questions. Oh, you can't make money being an artist. What you going to do? How are you going to paint it? Yeah, there, there's some value there. But that's good that you were able to navigate that, though, and uh, from a financial side, be able to benefit from that. Because some people walk into situations and not 
not be able to take full advantage of your your value if they don't know uh, some of those nuances. So, agree. Yeah, I had a great mentor in there. Well, I won't say mentor, but one of my consultants who actually built or manufacture each of those stone panels for me. They've done work with a lot of museums around the world. It's a company called Cura Stone. Uh, they're based in Madison, but they do a lot of stone projects again for like museums in Rome. Uh, they've done work with uh, David Aje. So when it went from being like some type of vinyl wrap to now being stone, he actually sat down with me and like, let me show you what you should charge. He's like, no, that's not what you charge. He said, you're not, you know, just creating something in the moment. You're bringing all of this history of what you've learned, all of the failed experiments, all of the lectures, all of those nights, you're bringing all of that to the table. You're not just making this textile for this one moment. And you charge for all of that experience, not just this one project. And, you know, he said a lot more than that, but that was the one thing that really stuck with me about how you set in your feet. It's all of your other projects, all those failed experiments that allow you to do this thing today. Yeah, so he was great and helped me make sure that I don't lose money in that that moment. It's important to know your value. And like I said, I, I think we get we get beat down in architecture is being known as a commodity and not, you know, all of that. They try to take away that value, especially when you get around the table with the contractors and, and certain owners. You know, that happens to us. And then from an African-American culture, we, we beat ourselves down on our values as well uh, from, from a cultural standpoint. So that, like I said, that's very, that was very key for you to have that. Like you said, a lot of things happen in the divine order, right? You to have that mentor come in and, and help you at that point. That that was great to, to make you realize that, you know, that's just going to catapult you from the future because I could see. I can see more art stuff coming and uh, like I said, how, how diverse your career is going is uh, more possibilities coming out there. And and it doesn't seem like you say no to a lot of stuff. So that's good. <laughs> I, I learned how to say no recently. <laughs> okay. I used to not say no. Well, I'm sure y'all, y'all are veterans. Y'all know what not saying no means. You end up doing so much stuff. You're like, why did I say yes to this? <laughs> exactly. Yes. The last the last year we've been having that conversation. <laughs> yeah, you you know it sounds good when you said yes originally, but then now eight months later when it's time to do this thing you say yes to, like why did I say yes? Uh, but yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty open. I will say, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what's next. One of my one of the biggest dreams though that I do have, uh, similar to you know lead you have will. You know, I always call hip hop like this post-occupancy uh, report on modernism. I want to actually create a this post-occupancy evaluation from hip hop and create this database where you can go and look up lyrics that talk about architecture. But then how can you use that database to create some type of rubric or score sheet when developers are doing something in Detroit, for example? What has been said by people who are not at the tables doing those community engagement events, they're not architects or planners, but what have they said about schools in Detroit or hospitals in Detroit? We talk about some of the, the mortality rates for infants from, from Black mothers during birth. That's all I talked about in our music. And is there a way that you could force developers to respond to 
of some of the issues uh, that have been talked about in music for decades and just kind of swept under the rug or people haven't been able to pull those stories out. But is there some type of metric that could be generated from music that impacts development as it happens? So now people are not rapping about the same thing every year. Uh, they're not talking about drugs. They're not talking about murders. They're not talking about crime rates. They're not talking about slum lords. That's something I've been pondering on for so long. It's what is the uh, the metric that allows us to impact architecture and urban design that's driven by by hip hop? Oh, even to uh, a lot of the community meetings that I've been in, there's no young people at the community meetings. It's it's mainly, you know, you if you catch the uh, early meetings, it's usually the retired people or the neighborhood who are keeping the eye out and they're there. And then you, after work meetings, you get the people coming straight from work and they kind of involved in the community. They stop, but the, that young voice, and if you could figure out how to get them more involved in their, in their say so in this report mm -hmm. and study, that would have impact because we had a discussion about like pathways that go through a neighborhood, right? When you see like this this walked pathway. It's usually the young kids that have figured out that shorter way to get somewhere and that path is cut. And, you know, they know the little nuances of the neighborhood. If we can get that information from them and, and through hip hop, if you can help bring that out in community engagement, that would be the diamond in the rough. Yeah, I agree. And that, you know, and one of the, the very first hip hop architecture camp was actually a part of a community engagement session. So it was with the city of Madison and their planning department and the mayor's office. They were doing an update to the city's comprehensive plan. And I went to one of the comp plan, you know, engagement sessions. Just like you said, it, you know, they had the demographic questions and you used to clicker and then they'll show like the dynamic results. Like, what's the age? You know, what ethnicity and what part of the city you from? And it was two black people in there. It was me and there was a lady who was an older woman. So I'm not even going to count her because I think she had to be at the meeting. So I went to her afterwards. I'm like, you know, how can we get some more people? She's like, oh, I share it out with folks. I'm like, right, we're going to come up with something. And yeah, I met a planner. He introduced me to the mayor. I'm like, yeah, let's do a uh, like a hip hop event. And it, it kept growing steam from there. And I called it the hip hop architecture camp. But it was all about getting young, young folks to give some input on a comp plan. So in that comp plan now you go you see like the song that the kids wrote is in there uh their ideas about the neighborhood like they responded to i think it was like 14 different items that the city was going to focus on for that comp plan and they made a response to each of those 14 items either directly or through their music so that was the very first the very first camp it's all about that that civic engagement nice wow i gotta get back to that so since then it's been like Ah, that's cool, but no, let's just do our own thing. We want to respond to these comp plans. Let's let's just do a camp for the sake of introducing you to architecture. We just need a you know to replicate you, Mike, so you can get back to all of the different aspects you got going on. You got the artist side, the, <laughs> the community side, the architecture side. So <laughs> that's what caused all my gray hairs. I was I was running around too much, not saying no. I'm going to every city, but we started. I've started to to branch out and I got some more folks uh, that now run camps when I'm not even there. So this summer, this is my first camp because it's at home, but all the other camps that I've had, uh, it's been ran by other people. Uh, That's good. It's all about scaling. Yeah. Yeah. Scale it so you can grow it. 
yeah, the whole that whole uh, business side of everything. Uh, you know, Karen and I are both uh, Goldman Sachs uh, ten thousand uh, small business alumni, and we both went through that program, and we went to the summit last last uh, week. Man, I keep thinking it's like two weeks ago. Right, just <laughs> like, last week, <laughs> last last week, and uh, you know, just like having time. Sometimes you get so busy, and you like you said, you're not saying no. Just having time to really think about your processes and your business, and you know how you want to move the needle. You have to have those moments, you know, to, to give yourself time to to move things and 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 be able to scale it. But it's hard to do it when you're in the everyday day to day. You stuck doing. You're stuck in the right. business and not working on the business. So that's that's good that you taking that time. That's what you need. Yeah, yeah. So I think early on it was more like, and you want to be hands on. You want to have a part doing everything. You also, you testing. You know your curriculum, your your process. Working with consultants, saying who who gonna film the good video, who not gonna do a good right. video. But now it's at a point where I can be a little bit more hands off and work from a, a higher level of like, you know, working with the host, getting funding for the program, but not executing the program. So we've been working with like students from HBCUs. They get a stipend. They get to travel to a new city. Uh, they get paid to run a camp. All their travel is taken care of. Uh, and then I got my nephew from Detroit, who's also, you know, he's done a few camps on his own. I just graduated from from UDM. This I think this you camp. had a little something to do with that. Oh, oh yeah, 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 a little, a little bit, <laughs> a little yeah, bit, all, a little bit. He did all the work. Uh, a little bit, definitely encouraging him to you know study architecture. But yeah, he's been able to. Go to cities like I've talked about Memphis, been to St. Louis. Um, you know, he's starting to get newspaper articles written about him conducting a hip hop architecture camp. So, and as I said uh, earlier, hip hop is definitely a, a young culture. So now all of the artists that um, are newer and these like TikTok sensations, he knows exactly who they are. And we're getting them to now, you know, come to the camp. So, uh, in Memphis, we had this young man named NLE Chopper. I was like, okay, he's going to come. That's great. Then they showed me his TikTok and his Instagram. I was like, man, this kid has like 5 million followers. And um, I didn't know his music until they showed me some TikTok videos. I was like, oh, I know exactly who he is. But getting him to come to the camp, he's like the same age as my nephew. So it's interesting for him to now be thinking about you know, these are clients potentially um, that he's meeting, but there are also people who help amplify his voice because he can say, hey, y'all should go to college and study architecture like me. You probably get a couple of people to listen. But if he can get this artist to say that, he's just amplify his voice and talk to more people in, you know, that single moment than he probably would uh, in his entire lifetime. So. It's been good to see him. And then I got a whole group of students from Howard who participated in like one of uh, the early camps. Uh, they now travel around doing camps for me, too. But yeah, I'm trying to duplicate myself. All right. That's great. And building a legacy in the process. All right. Yeah. All Involving right. the HBCU. Shout, shout out. Right. right. Shout out. I don't want to. I know we got to let you go. It's been a long Saturday for you, but I, I don't want to end on a sour note, but I do want to be real. Right. Uh, what are some of the some of the obstacles that you've faced or you we would like to put out there to let people know this it's real obstacles that are still happening for black architects. Yeah. I think one of the 
first and most persistent obstacles I faced was not being licensed. And what is your place in this profession if you are not licensed? And is there a place for you if you don't have your license? I went to straight hip hop mode. Uh, I was anti-licensure for a while. Um, I was like, hey, Dr. Dre got everybody in the world calling him Dr. Dre. And, you know, I also looked at people like uh, Le Cabousier, like that's that's not even his real name. It's a moniker, right? He made up this name because he wanted people to know him as something else because his name wasn't really something that like set him apart. So he made up a moniker, right? And that's what he lectured on. And that's how he. Oh, Frank Gary's real name is not Frank Gary. He changed his name, too. Right. And and I'm looking at like in hip hop, like the same thing. Like it was, you know, I could be Ice Cube. Like the Ice Cube sounds a little different than O'Shea Jackson. Right. Mm-hmm. So I started calling myself the hip hop architect. One, because I wanted people to call me an architect. Like I didn't go to school, pay all this money to be called designer or so. I want to be called an architect. And then that definitely ruffled feathers. Hip hop architectural designer does not roll off the tongue as easily either <laughs> so, uh, but yes it, i can imagine it ruffles some feathers it, it ruffles feathers <laughs> calling yourself the hip-hop architect and going out doing public speaking i remember i did a lecture for cleveland they had an aia conference and they invited me to be a keynote and then a newspaper you know interviewed me and you know, was calling me the hip-hop architect and this was the first time that a group of architects ever challenged me being called the hip-hop architect. They wrote a letter to the publication. He's not an architect. He shouldn't be called an architect. And then the publication said, well, we didn't call him an architect. We called him the hip-hop architect. I heard about hair architects and all these other architects. So I was like, kudos to the paper. But then they still changed it because these people were so persistent. It was his hidden hand. Didn't know who it was. Um, but that was the first time that it really bubbled up into more of a public issue. You know, also in the background, there's always discussions of, do we call him the hip hop architect? But I will say one of the most gratifying moments was in, in 2017 when uh, the AIA invited me to be a keynote speaker in Orlando for uh, so it was a keynote panel. They called me the hip hop architect. Like we talked about that all beforehand. I'm like, I don't want to be called anything else. I want to be called the hip hop architect. And AIA did it. And I wasn't licensed at that moment. And um, I think, you know, once that happened, I definitely like settled in. I wasn't on, on eggshells as much uh, of using a name. And, uh, but even after I did become licensed, you know, people would say, okay, now I, I feel better calling you the hip hop architect. It was just this weird moment. It was one of those challenges that I had to face, but I went in a hip-hop mode with that. Like, I can be called an architect. Y'all call Dr. Dre doctor. Y'all don't have a problem with that. And I don't have to use that as a metric of success. Uh, That is not when success starts in architecture. I can go out. I can lecture. So I lectured at all these places all before getting my license, which was, you know, just last year. So my whole goal was, you know, showing people that you can have impact. You don't have to have this traditional route um, that they want us to have. And then last, some of the, the other challenges is, well, one of the other big challenges is now that you've created a name, you know, you also start to see perspective or meet prospective clients. 
it's not how do you like consume that work and not having a concrete plan of when I do this project on my own or how do you approach joining a firm with clients that you're bringing in? Uh, some of those things that we don't have a lot of discussions about uh, definitely became a challenge I had to work through as opposed to being prepared to approach it. And I think that's something that will definitely benefit the next generation if they learn how to you know, approach corporate America and when you have potential clients in your pocket. What does that mean? Yeah. When you come to a firm, you know, how do you leverage that? And um, yeah, if it's not set up the right way. So I, I had a lot of battles um, there. You know, I wish I didn't have to go through, but at the same time, I'm glad that I did because now all of the projects I'm, I'm working on now, I'm teaming with firms as opposed to saying, hey, I want to come work at your office. So now I can team with a firm like HGA, uh, teaming with Gensler on a, uh, on a project. Yeah. And trying to maximize my opportunity of you know, remaining the hip hop architect, starting to build my own uh, staff and being able to consume more work and not be consumed by going into a firm. And yeah, I almost hopefully I'll get what I'm saying. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. It's like, I mean, the other thing is, too, like within the architecture, you know, they don't talk about the business of architecture when we went to school. You know, it's like it was all about design. It was all about like health, safety, welfare you know, and everything about the building, but it did not talk about the business. You know, they talk about practice, liability, but they don't talk about the business side of architecture. So like I was saying earlier, like that's what made me go through Goldman Sachs 10,000 small buildings. I felt like I had to get a mini MBA alongside my business to figure out how to, how to navigate the business side of things and talking to corporations, talking to other firms and how do you do joint ventures? How do you do, what's the difference between the joint venture and just a you know a partnership on, yeah a partnership or a consultant on a project you know you had to learn all that uh, so I, I get what you're saying it's just uh, it, it doesn't make it easy that in general as a career we we're not um, uh, educated on that and then for me you know both my parents were Ford employees I didn't have business owners in my family to go to to say oh how should I handle this you know I was figuring out a lot of things. On my it, own how much money to... are you making a year? That was the big thing. What's your annual salary? What's your salary? That was... Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. At school, it's like, and that's what my son is looking at now. He's looking at careers. He's like, oh, how much am I going to make? I'm like, yeah, that's it. It's like, right. you know, and that's available online, right? You can look up the labor uh, statistics for, you know, different categories of prof- of a career, but not, you know, it's sometimes, you know, people don't pay how much attention to the firm you make annually in this in this billing and and then based on the size of that firm you know and if you're getting down into a small business that's different demographics and a lot of data is not available on that on that level of uh, businesses so you, it's a lot of learning so i think we still have a lot more to go in that especially with blacks in architecture and we definitely have a lot more to go with the business side of architecture in general yeah that that's undoubtedly been my biggest challenge and, and it was i had a conversation with some folks they're like yeah you you run into the same thing that the early hip-hop artists ran into like you got a great product and now you know how do you package that because everybody else is seeing the money right yeah right. Um, they're right. seeing how they can build generational wealth for you you're like i'm just doing the work and it, it's happened with the hip-hop architecture camp sometimes i'll get like, here's a twenty-five thousand dollar grant to do a camp like, okay great i'm gonna do it and then it's other folks, they want to host a camp and like, 
25,000. Like, no, you should be getting like a million dollar grant to, <laughs> so it was like, how do you really take advantage of your, your skill, uh, your uniqueness? And sometimes we, we're, we're pure artists. We, we love to create, but um, we haven't had those generations of, you know, business development. So even like young architects knowing they billable rates. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about Ray Charles and owning your masters. Right. right. So he owns everything that he produces. So how do we how do we own, you know, everything that we produce? Or how do we at least get a fair share of what we produce? Or even to start to think about it like that, right? Like yeah. so, like right. so seeds to had a vision to see that, right? It's mm-hmm. like, so I'm I'm gonna go back to the history too. Another thing that you have, Mike, that really relates to Noir Design Part T and our work. This, that you had this Facebook post recently, and it really hit me too. It's only 10 licensed Black architects in the state of Wisconsin. And I'm like, whoa. And we, you know, we kind of drilled down that same number in Michigan. You know, our, our lowest number is only, uh, there's 14, uh, we call them the Baker's Dozen African-American women licensed in Michigan. Mm. But we almost close to 80 overall uh, Black architects licensed in Michigan. And it's a big difference between demographics of Michigan and Wisconsin. For you to find that stark number, how are you dealing with that? I see I see some things you're doing, but I'll let you talk about it. Yeah. So I will say I was, you know, I've been in Wisconsin for 12 years and um, I had my constant nag of Walter Wilson. Uh, Walter Wilson, you know, long time, no more member of FAIA. Walter's like, Mike, you know, he talks with this very slow, deliberate cadence you don't waste a single word it's like mike we have to add you to this list he was saying every time he sees me so but when i first met him again i was on this like rogue thing like forget the license i can go out i'm a lecturer i'm gonna do this but eventually i'm like no you want to consume those projects you need to get that license but what since learning those numbers and shout out to the group who keeps up uh, that list of uh, black architects state by state. I think Noma is now. Yeah, the, Noma is now taking over with the University of Cincinnati. Uh, used to do, uh, and they took over the ownership of the site because uh, university uh, funding had ran out for it. So that that list I always monitored that list, and knowing that the numbers are are so low, two things came to mind that I wanted to do. The first thing I did when I became the uh, president for Wisco Noma, I said. All of the architects on this list need an article. Uh, they need their own article that talks about them, not about their firms, whether it's their own firm or, or not. I just an article about you, who you are, and uh, I got a media partner uh, to produce an article about each person on that list and about some of the you know the future architects in the state. And then the second thing is I started having discussions with people around the city of Madison and the state of Wisconsin. As there are a lot of cultural projects happening now, it's a lot of guilt money that's floating around and there's projects that have been on the, the shelf uh, for a long time. They're now getting funded. And uh, I've had discussions with folks about, you know, what does it mean to work with a Black architect? Uh, because sometimes you will you know, have firms who might have, a, you know, a young junior level staff person and they're like, yes, look at our Black architect. You know, at that moment, you are an architect. It's great to well, they're not going to call you architect, but they're going to live in the world of semantics, all right, and promote you as this design lead or whatever. So I started having discussions about, 
what does it mean to work with a black architect? You're going to work with the majority owned firm. Can you find a majority owned firm who have black leadership? Those are the firms you should, you should work with. Or can you find a minority owned firm, have them partner with a firm, but even that firm they partner with, they should have some uh, minorities within their, their leadership roles. So I've been having conversations with companies because again, there are a lot of black projects happening in, in Madison now. And um, it was kind of hurtful to see, you know, some of the people they collaborated with and knowing that there are people who have firms before me and they've been waiting for opportunities like this. Mm. And uh, the world of semantics kind of took them away from them. And then the very last thing I did was just through people I met through the hip hop architecture camp. I'm like, let me see if I can start getting some study materials for free. So I know Noma, you know, we can get some support with Black Spectacles now, uh, which we've been pushing with our members. And now uh, I've gotten some uh, access to like the ballast study material. So I now made through Wisco Noma, you know, members can check out the study material. Just trying to do things to, that I think would be helpful for taking those tests because paying for the test is one thing, but it's also all the money you spend you know, studying for or buying study material. So those are things we're doing. Our, our next step is trying to get some funding to pay for people's exams because not all firms reimburse folks or you only get reimbursed if you pass it. It's like, so now you're more timid to take it because you don't want to lose that 200 something dollars. So I want to get people to like, you should be reimbursed whether you're taking a pass or not because that's half of the step is just showing up. I mean, half of the battle is showing up to take yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so that's our, right. our next goal. I know our firm just changed it to unlimited tests. Uh, they'll pay for it. So I was what? like, okay, yeah. They, oh, that's and, great. Yeah, and that's... they and they literally like, hey, just take it. You Did know, you're so like, scared just... now. You like, man, I got to get that two hundred. It was like two hundred forty dollars. I can't just blow it. I need to. Right. So I get reimbursed. So you, it's the anxiety. Added. Yeah, anxiety. It adds to the pressure. It adds to the pressure. Yeah. And and I, I like I said, I well, you know, I I know I've told you uh, personally, but you know, congratulations on on getting that done last year. I know I know a lot of people have been on the fence about, you know, like you said, anti-licensing. And I've, I've heard that from a couple of people. But in this work that we've been doing with Noir Design Party, if it was not for the state records of these licensed architects or the uh, the submissions that they put into AIA and different things, we would not have been able to find mm. our information about them. So it's, it's a little mm-hmm. bit of Quite a legacy. A yeah, it's a little bit of a legacy piece. It's. You know, we find some of the designers at different firms because of that other, you know, trailblazer that was there. And they and we know some of the some of the people that work with them. But it's a it's a it's a it's a harder paper trail in the future. But I know digitally things change that, too. But from a historical standpoint, it was very important. And for me, <laughs> I was the same way with you, where you were with the hip hop architect. I was like, I didn't want to be called an architect. I'm going to do whatever it takes to pass this exam. I don't want nobody to tell me <laughs> after all this time, you can't tell me I'm not an architect. I had to do it. I had to knock it out. But I was like, uh-uh, I'm not even going to debate it because I'm not talking about this. Yeah. That was, I, that was another anxiety talking about that. Are you licensed or not licensed? I'm like, what? And I will quickly tell people, no, I'm not an architect because I honor what you all have gone through 
to pass those exams. So yeah, Karen, yeah. Karen like the major connector though. She so connect all the disciplines: <laughs> engineering, construction, <laughs> development, architecture. I say I'm architecture adjacent. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I will say though, and I, and I tell this to our kids during the hip hop architecture camp. Since architecture has been commodified, like you got to go to our school, you got to go through this process to get your license or you can design something. Architecture has suffered from not having the contributions of black and brown folks. Just what architecture is has drastically changed since us, like these master designers and master builders, going back to you know civilization, ancient civilizations, or going back to Egypt and the pyramid, something people are still trying to figure out how they did it, why they did it, and even debating if they did it, right? Oh, aliens must have did it. Black people gave me that. Some aliens must have came in, some extraterrestrial, some of the crazy theories that are out there. But ever since we have been locked out of architecture and they've really commodified it and you know made it you know, this licensure process, architecture has suffered due to the lack of like our contribution. And that's something we talked about even with that National Guardian Life project is how many times have you walked into a space or a recent space and wondered, why did they build this? How did they make this? And that was one of the statements I wanted to make with their DEI statement. I want people to walk into their lobby and say, what is this? And this gave everybody or gives everybody who works at National Guardian Life Insurance an opportunity to talk about their commitment to DEI because now they get to tell a story of what this is, how it was made, and they can recite their DEI statement. And it's much more engaging than just putting words on the wall. And it, it goes back to this root of like us creating something that makes you say, how the hell did they do that? Why? What is this? Like, what, yeah. what is like, yeah. You don't get that same spark that you have. And I think we bring that, but they want you to do all these hoops, right? Go to school, take the exams, spend this money, kiss the ring. <laughs> and now you can make something, right? Uh, in hopes of stripping you from all your culture, all of the uniqueness that you bring, each one of those kind of strip who we are away from us. And now you've been groomed to be an architect. Yeah, yeah. That's something, Mike, because think of the the enthusiasm and, you know, the love of architecture that students start out with when they're in architecture school and having to go through this 5, 10, 20 year process to actually become licensed. Like you say, a lot of that becomes stripped away. Yeah. So I'm trying to trying to stop that stripping away. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, but it's been it's been great talking with y'all. I want to have like a whole nother discussion while while I'm here. Oh. They don't have to record it. Is <laughs> it? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, we definitely now we know we're gonna be here for a minute. Let's 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 hook up. And right. Then, and like I said, now that we're in the podcast business, you're welcome to come back and do another show. We appreciate this intro. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Uh, yeah. We appreciate everything that you do, Mike. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for for your far-reaching impact on our architecture profession. We appreciate that. And thank you for taking the time after the camp today. (laughs) You've already had a long day. No problem. No. Well, I want to say thank y'all too for telling these stories. Uh, I love the idea of hidden in plain sight. And hopefully these are our stories that people will be looking at, you know, for the next you decades, right? Learning our history, stories are told when the three of us are no longer here, right? So thank you right. for capturing our voices, 
uh, and sharing it with, with folks that we'll never have the, the luxury of meeting, but hopefully be inspired by, you know, the stories and, you know, everything that y'all are capturing and telling about folks. So thank y'all for capturing the, the legacy of Detroit folks. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's spelled S-I-T-E, we really would appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone else who would love it too, please share it with them. If you're looking for more content like this, Hidden in Plain Sight is part of the Gable Media Network. You can find similar shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And before you go, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the contributions of our upcoming contemporary and trailblazing architects. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just <laughs> taking it day by day, Yes, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives.